Hello and welcome to Music Speaks. This is the podcast dedicated to how music impacts people's lives. For this show, we usually have two co-hosts, myself, Hunter Sagona, and Sean Rimkunis, my friend sitting on his bed. Sean and I believe that many people have a playlist that makes their life unique through music. We pride ourselves on building upon our musical knowledge with our featured guests, jamming to incredible music, and talking about a wide variety of artists and composers, as well as everything in between. Here's a musical quote for today. The ability to play the clarinet is the ability to overcome the imperfections of the instrument. There's no such thing as a perfect clarinet. Never was and never will be. Jack Brimer. Today we will sit down with returning guest and DMA student at Michigan State University, Valerie Nutzolo. Without further ado, here's Val. And we are here with Val, our, our third times returner. So congratulations on that, Val. Thank you, it's nice to be back. Um, so the, we wanna get started right away. So the first song of the list that you chose is Brahms Clarinet Quintet. Uh, so first thing right off the bat, we're diving into some clarinet repertoire. Um, there are not a ton of classical pieces for featured clarinet, particularly around this time period. Um, why'd you choose this one? Honestly, it's just one of my favorite pieces. Yeah. You know, that's ever been written. It honestly is. Lately, my music taste has been all over the place. Um, and mm -hmm. I think going back to something like the Brahms clarinet quintet is calming to me. I don't know. But I've also been finding some inspiration in it because a lot of, especially being a music student, and I know, Sean, you're doing your DMA as well, so you probably understand, a lot of the focus is on the new and mm -hmm. what can our generation as musicians bring to the table now. And I think it's very encouraging that a piece like, I mean, I obviously Brahms had success well beyond the clarinet quintet, but that's just right. one of my favorite things he wrote. So um, a piece like his clarinet quintet that was written, you know, a very long time ago um, is still just as successful and keeps growing in success. So it's kind of encouraging to me that maybe something that we put out there, especially as a result of the pandemic, you know, might continue to reach that level of importance, I guess, in music history. Mm -hmm. Right. Well beyond after we've all, you know, turned to dust. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so why do you think this is just more of a, a little technical thing? Oh, you know what? No, no, let me backtrack for a second. Brahms, I had a professor in college and for some reason, I don't know why really, she hated Brahms. And she was like, you know, I have nothing against the guy really in particular. I'm like, really? Cause it sounds like you do. Um, she was like, but you know, he really didn't contribute anything new. I was like, if you say so, I, I, she seemed to have the opposite opinion to most people, but uh, I was just curious about if you have any larger opinion on him. So I have heard that opinion. And as a matter of fact, used to have that opinion, really? but when I had that opinion, I was an undergrad student who really didn't know how to really learn a sonata. I, I was learning, you know, the second clarinet sonata, like every clarinetist gets introduced to Brahms with. And frankly, the clarinet part alone without the piano part is a little bit boring. And I, I was kind of, 
I was only a, I think I was a sophomore or a junior, but I was still getting my feet wet and still learning. And I think I just simply got it before I was ready. I just didn't understand. And then I remember my senior year, I had to pull it out again because I was, you know, recording it for pre-screenings. And I was like, you know, this is a really beautiful piece of music. And then it wasn't until my master's that I really started to understand um, the genius behind all of it. It's mm-hmm. like, I, I think Brahms is someone who, I don't really believe that you need to go through something tragic to be a good artist, but in Brahms's case, I don't think it hurt. You know, <laughs> I, think, I think it really helped because everything that he writes to me is so personal and you just hear his story through everything. And I think that as a result, you know, it takes a bit more of a mature mind to really understand uh, why it's so as highly regarded as it is. Mm-hmm. And for listeners who might not know, what, any particular tragedy that you think contributed to his life? Um, well, I think his life was just kind of one big tragedy. <laughs> <You know>, <laughs> he was life- a tragic <laughs> human. Yeah, I mean, his life was just very difficult. And not just him, the composers uh, like Beethoven, too. Yeah. Uh, Beethoven went through something really challenging and losing his hearing. Mozart's, you know, although Mozart had... A, <laughs> Lifestyle. Was a different kind of guy. But his life was... He still faced his challenges. And I think it's more... Uh, I think it's, it's um, the tension that Mm -hmm. Brahms specifically writes in his music is about facing challenges. So I don't know if there's necessarily a specific one that he was thinking of. I don't know if I would ever know that. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm sure historians can make a case for it, but I think it's just about facing challenges in the general sense so that it can also be relatable to us who face our own, you know? Mm -hmm. Sean, were you raising your hand? I was. I was trying to get the attention of the class. I think there might be another reason that he sort of felt this way too, which could have been his his love, his undying love for Clara Schumann oh, at this time yeah. too. Yeah, because I think there yeah, was this. There right. is nothing more angsty than a good love triangle. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and, from, and there is a ton. It's of not like musicians are angsty at all, right? You know, I'm sure a lot of it had to do with her. In fact, in the not the quintet, but in the clarinet sonata in the second movement of the E flat sonata. I've heard a lot of people say violas too, because we share that the sonatas with the uh, violas. Um, I've heard them say that it is very clearly about Clara Schumann. And I just am not Brahms, therefore don't feel comfortable declaring one way or the other, but I can mm-hmm. certainly see it. That's really funny. Uh, yes, the constant like artists struggle with you know, the, un- the undying love, him, Dante Alighieri. I mean, it's like, they're always all over the place. Artists in general, I think they just like to be sad. Um, they're like <laughs> the inspiration comes from the sadness. Oh yeah, um, they're great at pulling inspiration from it. And like I said, there's nothing more, more angsty than like a good love triangle or matters of the heart tend to be the most, uh, make you the most dramatic, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know? <laughs> That's definitely true. Uh, so this is like I said, this is what I was going to say before, before I, I went off on a tangent. Um, why do you think so many composers of this period chose to write for a clarinet instead of the standardized B flat? Was it out of necessity for those who don't know the history of the clarinet? Obviously it's a relatively new instrument. Yeah, well, um, necessity is one thing. 
Um, but also, I think even then, even when the clarinets were made out of boxwood, <clears throat> and even when they were still developing, there was just something about a it, it's a darker timbre. Yeah. Um, so that's one factor. But certainly necessity, um, just simply because of the transposition. When the clarinet didn't have all of its keys, it could only play, like it mm. really only sounded good in F or G, um, simply because we didn't have the means to play chromatically yet. Uh, right. Although by Brahms, we pretty much did. Um, I think it was just like they were used to it at that point. But I think that A clarinet was just more convenient it was a little bit easier on the fingerings of the player. Mm -hmm. And also it was just a little more accessible at the time. Yeah. Cause I mean, they were using and a all the way up to Stravinsky, you know, he even, you know, he wrote for a and every so often after the turn of the century, you know, they'd write for both, right. They'd have an a clarinet and like, you know, one or two parts for B flat clarinet. So I was just find that interesting. I know when we, I was in the pit for uh, into the woods for one of the productions I did, it was like, play these three bars in A clarinet and then switch back to B flat. And when you're like, what, why? So but you're I at the played tone. the production of Into the Woods also. And I have to say it was surprisingly difficult, but yeah, sometimes I think they just do that. Yeah, uh, it's really difficult. Yeah, it's really difficult. And sometimes I think they just do that kind of thing to make the clarinetist life as easy as possible, but sometimes they inadvertently make it difficult. <laughs> it's like, mm -hmm. instead of learning a really hard key for these three measures, you know, get a new horn <laughs> yeah yeah let's switch for those three and then switch back for the one song because that clearly makes it easy but that said i'm sure you know at, like at this point here in 2020 we can play the quintet really on whatever we want um mm -hmm. we could i think i put a bartok contrast on this list too that you have the option to play it some players play it on a clarinet some players play it on all b flat clarinet instead of switching uh, and we have the option to do that, but I think people like to favor the A clarinet for a piece like Brahms because it is darker mm -hmm. and it, it does get a little bit of a more, uh, brooding, <laughs> right. A more, okay. Yeah. A more brooding <laughs> sound. I was going to say darker again, but I like brooding. <laughs> it does get a bit of a more brooding sound and it just, uh, I don't know, something about it gets the point across more. B flat tends to be a little brighter, mm -hmm. more bandy. <laughs> uh, the the last question I have for this one is you mentioned options you know part of the appeal of a clarinet is versatility and range you know it, it's it has the ability to you know go all the way up in that altissimo range all the way down um, do you have a preferred range to play in I really like it, it might be because I'm very into playing bass clarinet actually but I really love to play in the low Shalimar range. Mm -hmm. I, I just think it's gorgeous down there. I mean, Altissimo can be very beautiful too. And the Clarion range can be very beautiful. I think the whole mm -hmm. instrument is beautiful, of course. Um, but there's just something about a very low clarinet sound that is very appealing to me. Yeah, I like the resonance and, and the, the richness that it can have in the low range. So I agree. Yeah. So speaking of a brooding composer, I know that Sean wants to take the next one. Sure. Um, we actually did a deep dive on uh, this uh, a little while ago. We uh, did. Um, Hunter was like, please don't bring back bad memories. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> did you? See, and here I brought it because I knew you'd want to talk about it. I love right. this piece. And then I, I know that we both had played it, not together, but we both had done it at Ithaca College. 
I know, and I am just so jealous of those who get to, because it's just one of those pieces that, when you play it, it just gives you shivers, and it gives you just so much excitement to play. I think it's just really fun. Um, I Like I said, it's one of my favorite pieces. Um, why did you put this at the top of your top ten? Um, so, you know what's fascinating that I learned? I don't know if you knew this, and I myself did not know this until uh, one of my more recent studio classes that came up, that this actually was a product of Spanish flu. I don't know if it was intended to be, but wow. it actually, the timing worked out where this came out. You know, he Stravinsky was, and I, I did a little reading, and the gist is that Stravinsky was kind of, uh, dealing with like a, a loss in the family and he was struggling financially and he's like I need a theater piece and he wrote this soldier's tale and he was all set to go on tour and then the Spanish flu and he couldn't go on tour and it's just incredible to me how the more things change the more things stay the same you know <laughs> and oh, so yeah. again kind of like Brahms it makes me encouraged that I, I wonder what um great things are going to come out of our Spanish flu or in, or in this case, the COVID-19, you know? Right. Yeah. And I but think I thought it was a timely thing to bring up too. Right. And I think it's actually a great segue into thinking about what creative processes can sort of create out of tragedy or crisis. And I think that's something that he really uh, sort of accomplished really well. And um, I like to say, um, Hunter, what did I like to say about uh, um, Stravinsky? With his, um, with in regard to writing his music, how many shits did he give? Zero. That is correct. Thank you. Uh -huh. I've trained you. I've trained you so well. Yes, Honestly, it's now an involuntary response. <laughs> I, I feel like I feel like with that in regard to that material, um, he he really gets so into the idea of shell shock, and the idea of sort of being sort of like a hero coming home from war, but being, um, being, not being yourself. And we'll talk about that when we get to double life where you have this split personality and you sort of see that within the characters in the, in, in this, in this theater piece, which is just so breathtakingly beautiful and terrifying. Um, and something he does really well with this work is not shy away from really insensitive and sort of really like, kind of gross topics and sort of makes you feel on edge he doesn't i don't think that's something that you think about that much but um that, that at the time we had all these really nice fluffy pieces and he's like you know what i want to make the audience feel uncomfortable they should they should leave this feeling like we should talk about this more because it's an issue and not trying to build upon the same issue because it's, it's, it's a big deal um, and like I mentioned, there's a lot of symbolism in this work, a lot of it, and it's written very well. Um, in regard to symbolism, what is your favorite aspect of this uh, soldier's tale? My favorite aspect, let's see. I would describe it as more of a, a general sense, I guess, but I would describe it as very raw. Like you uh. were saying, <laughs> Stravinsky does not care about being politically correct he is just going to he has this he wants to say he's not going to find a nice you know uh like politically correct way to say it he's just going to come right out with it and i 
have a lot of respect for that, but I also think that has a lot to do with why um, it got the accolades that it got and why it ended up being as highly regarded as it is. Cause it's just so, so a favorite aspect of it, I guess that's my favorite um, aspect of it, that it's right. just so unafraid and it's just so to the point. And there's poetry in there too, because it is a polished, you know, work of art that he created. So there's going to be some poetry, but it's just very, it does not beat around the bush at all. <laughs> right. And that's something that you, you distinctly said, like it doesn't beg for forgiveness. It just does what it does and it kind of stands for itself. And uh, I like to use Hunter again. How many shits did he give while riding this Hunter? Zip. That is Zip. correct. Because <laughs> because honestly, if you think about Soldier's Tale, I mean, it is very apparent that he's really attacking something very clearly. And at the end, is there a real protagonist? Is there a real person who actually leads this situation with good intentions? The devil. Mm-hmm. But does the hero get what he wants at the end? No, he doesn't, which is oddly satisfying. Yeah, it's one big, uh, uh, one of those hard to swallow pills, you know? Right. <laughs> there's good and bad and there's bad and good and just tells it like it is. Right, and he's not afraid to be like, you know what? Things end badly for a lot of people and it might not sort of end the way they think they do. And sort of the same thing in regard to what happened with the Spanish flu and basically what's happening now. Who's winning? The virus. The Spanish flu, right? Because mm -hmm. at the end of the day, it's taking lives away from people. And at the same time, the devil just sort of tempts this guy and then he's then stuck into this sort of uh, limbo. And he's kind of trying to figure this out by himself, you know, which is hard. It's, yeah. it's scary. And yeah. The whole story he chose to make sense because Stravinsky, I think it was <clears throat> a brother maybe who was suffering, but don't uh, quote me on that. I know it was a familial loss and his financial problems and just the circumstances and also the, the pandemic of their day going on. You know, I imagine he felt incredibly stuck and like right. he would probably do anything to get out of that so i'm sure the story was based a, a bit on you know personal experience i'm sure too yeah sort of maybe seeing the glaze of someone from the affect of war because when we also think about what ha what was happening at the time was the end of world war one too mm -hmm. and in europe and that was a really world-changing view of war and how destructive it can be and how pointless the world war one was for many people who had thought that that was sort of the deal, you know, you know, I feel pl very politically charged right now. Cause I watched V for Vendetta last night and I was like, you know, here we go. You know? <laughs> yeah, that'll do it. <laughs> that would do it. Yes. Yeah. And I was like, Oh, here we go. So uh, the piece as a whole is incredibly challenging, and intricate for many instruments. Um, what do you find to be the most challenging for, for clarinetists in, in your, in your opinion? Oh, it's hard. Um, yeah, it's definitely hard. I would say, I, I remember when I played it, the Devil's Dance was terrifying to me because it was like, you get like two beats and then it's just all you for more or less the whole thing. Um, but, <laughs> that you know, such is life in chamber music. So I think that it is a lot of uh, squeaking out high notes. Right. Um, 
so that is challenging in and of itself but what really makes it difficult is the rhythm all Stravinsky's music is very rhythmic and the difficulty in the soldier's tale I think comes less in your own part where you know don't get me wrong there's a lot of difficulty in your own part but once you get the hang of that um the real difficulty comes in putting it with everybody else right because it's like it's one big composite rhythm and you just need to be so solid on where you fit into it right. every time. You know, it's funny. I was going to sing a lick from Soldier's Tale, but then I realized it's a lick from the octet. But I was oh. like, but that's not even Stravinsky, but like that might as be, well as be an example from something that he would write for clarinets because he knew that he could just, you know, and I, th I think something I mentioned to Hunter on our deep dive was that, he knew these instruments really well and he wrote mm -hmm. for them so well. And I think that's something that comes across um, very well in, in regard to this piece. Um, so we have yeah. some Eric. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, no, go ahead. I, I was just going to say, um, no, no, go ahead. I'm, I'm sure it was kind of an odd or a different combination uh, yeah. at that time too. What is Definitely. it? A clarinet, a trumpet, a trombone, a violin, a narrator, a percussion, you know? So I'm sure it was a little different. The first group that played it were probably instruments that were not used to playing only with each other. Right. We're right. going to provide some challenge too. Right. Um, Hunter does have to talk to you about some Eric Mandant. Mm -hmm. So I will step aside and Hunter, take it away. Sure. So um, I was not familiar with either of these pieces, I will say. Bad clarinetist that I am. Um, <laughs> as you know, slap on the wrist for me. Um, so the first one, you know, it's a very unusual piece of clarinet repertoire for those who don't know Eric Mandat. Um, where'd you come across it? Which one is the Rouser? The first oh, the one? Rouser. Yeah, so I came across it when I heard him, Eric Mandat, do it. So I've oh. always really liked Eric Mandat, but last year he came to Michigan State and he did a master class that I got to play and it was um, That's cool. an incredible experience. And he put on this recital and he opened with that piece, Rouser. And I just honestly remember being the geeky music student that I am. I just remember watching him play it and thinking it was one of the coolest things <laughs> because <laughs> it's, it's not like, you know, the newer solo clarinet music is, um, the more and more it develops. And I think Mandat's music is really particularly good about making one clarinet sound like an ensemble and Rouser mm -hmm. to me is a good example um, because it just constantly sounds like there's two players, but there's one. Yeah. I, mm -hmm. I, I definitely get that sense of like, it is a solo piece, but it could, it could definitely be more than one person doing this as a duet or if you weren't watching him do it. Um, Cause I think the video I saw was him doing it too. Mm -hmm. uh, how would you describe to this piece to someone who's never heard it? Um, well, it's different uh, than what you would expect because I think we're still getting used to, we as musicians are still getting used to um, music that is coming out that sounds like that. Uh, mm -hmm. I think it's different, but honestly, the word I use is just very cool. <laughs> I think yeah. it's just very cool what he could do. It really takes all of the things the clarinet can do and it reaches the limit and then it's like, nope. And it goes right past <laughs> the limit. Mm -hmm. So it, and all of his music does that. It just pushes the boundaries completely about what the instrument can do. Mm -hmm. And speaking of what the instrument can do, 
uh, what technical challenges as a clarinetist do you think this piece displays? Aside from being a solo piece, obviously, because that comes with its own set of challenges that are sort of inherent for solo pieces. Yeah, you know, uh, being a solo piece is certainly one of them. But aside mm -hmm. from that, um, technique is a big one. And the ability to kind of sound like two players in that bring out two voices at the same time. So for instance, there's a very loud voice and a very soft voice. Mm -hmm. And it's often like right on top of each other. So the ability to go from very loud to very quiet, to very loud to very quiet again, um, that kind of thing. And then, you know, he's got some multiphonics in there. He's got a bunch of extended techniques in there, flutter tonguing. I'm pretty mm -hmm. sure he does a lot. He tends to do that. Um, so yeah, <laughs> it, it's learning all your extended techniques, I think is makes it difficult, but mm -hmm. bringing out all the characters um despite them despite the technical challenges yeah have you ever gotten the chance to play this i have not it's a bucket list though and so is a uh, double life <laughs> um both of them are is bucket it? list pieces <laughs> well since you mentioned double life we might as well talk a little bit about that too um I, it really strikes this is a highly academic piece I at least I think it is you know his work seems to be like I said I don't know that much about him seems like he writes a lot of academic stuff not necessarily for those listening you know I don't mean academic as in like math I mean academic as in like it's meant to to test the musicality of the instrument of the performer meant to sort of expand the mind um can you describe like what does the performer do physically for this piece how is it performed so this piece is kind of a, a ride. Um, <laughs> the first movement, you actually are playing both of your clarinets. So the whole yes. life title um, is rather on the nose. And by both of your clarinets, I don't mean you switch back and forth. I mean, you are literally have both of them in your mouth and are playing them both at the same time. <laughs> and it is a very bizarre thing <laughs> to watch but it's a little hilarious and then after it's funny it just becomes really neat because it's almost this piece kind of cracks me up because he takes everything that we've been tempted to do at one point in the second movement you actually have this like pipe extension that you ex attach to your horn My he's goodness. taken he's taken everything that when you're a little kid you're 10 years old what every 10 year old boy who has a clarinet probably <laughs> wants to try to do to it and makes a reason <laughs> to do it and makes it sound really beautiful. So, but yeah, yeah, this piece has a lot of very abnormal things. The first and the second movement, particularly the third movement, you're just on one clarinet, but it's, it's fast and fun and um, all that. But I like it too, because Eric Mandat was a, uh, I believe they were very good friends, but he had a very close relationship with William O. Smith, mm -hmm. who was another clarinetist slash composer who passed away last year. Um, but William O. Smith, this piece is actually dedicated to Smith. And William O. Smith did live kind of a double oh, really? life. He had two loves of his life. So one was the William O. Smith, the solo clarinet composer and the solo clarinetist. And the other was Bill Smith, the jazzer. <laughs> so ah, okay yeah and, and i think this he does a terrific job eric mandat does a terrific job uh that uh you know making this relate to smith mm -hmm. interesting and um what would you say that, so would you say that's the purpose of the piece then to talk about his two great loves yeah i would say so mm -hmm. i would say so 
And this one, have you gotten a chance to perform? I have not. Or have you looked at the music for it? No, I haven't actually. I haven't um, really been able to find it. But once oh, no? I find it, I definitely want to. Yeah, like I said, I hadn't really heard of him before. Um, is he like a, a big name currently in the, the clarinet world? In the clarinet world, yeah, he's a bigger name currently. He um, is a, he's pretty much yeah. like William what? O. Smith. He is just a performer. Well, not just a performer in a right. way. He is a pretty um, successful performer slash composer for solo clarinet. And like Smith, his whole mission in life seems to be to push the boundaries of the instrument. And, you know, he succeeded in that we now have to play two at a time. <laughs> <laughs> so he really loves the instrument. Yep. <laughs> That's funny. All right, and with that, I will turn the baton back over to Sean, who wants to talk about some women and Coleman. That sounds great. Thank you, Hunter. Um, unfortunately, I did not get as prepped as I wanted to for this one because I could not find a recording. Um, but Val, I do want to sort of get your your opinion on this. Um, I did listen to an interview that Coleman did about this particular piece where she wanted to pay acknowledgement to those who were these phenomenal women. Um, and I think she, how does she achieve this? And tell me a little more about the piece. Cause I actually don't know what, what it actually, is it a solo piece? Is it a chamber piece? Is it a. So this is her piece for orchestra. And actually um, this is, it makes sense that you couldn't uh, quite find a recording of it. Cause it is pretty brand new. I believe she only came out with this last year or maybe even a little over a year ago. I can't quite remember. Um, I guess I'm a little underprepared for this one too. <laughs> but she, when she wrote this, she ended up being um, the first, it, it was a big deal because she ended up being the first woman of color to get an orchestra premiere of this size. It was for a full wow. orchestra. And she used her new, you know, she used this opportunity to, like you said, acknowledge um the women that kind of preceded her and just women composers in general but i love valerie coleman a lot her her uh, this is the, this i picked this one because this is the biggest piece so far that she's um gotten to i guess release but a lot of her compositions are with imani wind she started off as the flutist in imani winds <clears throat> um for those of you who don't know and a lot of her compositions are for woodwind quintet because of that and for chamber groups. And this particular one is a uh, phenomenal women. It's called uh, this particular one is significant because it's the first one for a large orchestra. Right. Yeah. I did maybe hear a little bit of it, but I, I do want to ask you, Val, um, what is so special about this piece? That makes it unique because I, I i know that she, when she was talking she said that she had this feeling of of wanting to pay homage to those who came before her who wanted to like create a better world and she does she does mention my angela which is my next question but i do want to sort of focus on the piece and how 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 beautiful is this piece have you gotten to play it before i haven't gotten to play it i've gotten to listen to it though and okay. um I think it's gorgeous and I think she does a great, I can't say that she uses direct quotes from any of the people that she, you know, pays homage to, but right, right. I think she just does a very good job in her, you know, her voicing and her arrangements and everything and 
um, giving them the respect that they earned. I do want to correct one thing. It's her other works aren't, she does have concert band pieces too. Oh, okay. So, but this is the first big orchestra piece. So it's big not orchestra. like she went from just a chamber music composer to a symphony, <laughs> you know, I she see. does have concert I see. band too. I see, okay. Just so, so I don't give anybody the wrong idea. <laughs> right, and in the interview that I had listened to, she does mention Maya Angelou a lot and her influence on her writing this piece because she had taken a bunch of texts that she had heard and listened to, and she really broke it down. And I believe it was uh, one of the one of the poems that she related this to was where the cage bird sings, I think, or mm -hmm. one of those one of those in vain of of what she had brought to the genre. Because she, I believe, she was a Pulitzer Prize winning um, writer, and uh, I think she's also yes. a Nobel Peace Prize winner as well. Um, uh, if you can think about the legacy that she has left and the legacy that um, these women have brought to this piece. What would you say to them now thinking about the impact that they've made in this genre and the impact they've made in, in art? Um, I think now the little that I know, I, I don't know a vast amount about Maya, Maya Angelou, but I do know that her whole thing, her whole theme seems to be just peace and and love everybody and respect everybody and if you give respect you you'll, or the, the best way to get respect is to give respect and so forth you know and i think that's what's so inspirational to composers like valerie coleman and to other female composers um i didn't know the extent that valerie coleman liked or, or uh, looked up to maya angelou but i did know that um she was an influence and i can certainly see why because it's almost like a, it, it's the whole attitude of respect. Give respect to get respect. Don't right. demand it, give it and then get it and just genuinely love everybody and do what's best for everybody. Beautiful. What a beautiful sentence. Thanks, Val. Um, Val, I think this is a great time for us to take a break. All right. Um, I hope you have our social media handles at bay. Are you ready to read them for us and let our listeners know how they can get in touch with us or how they can check out our content. I am almost ready to read them to you. Let's see here. Oh my gosh, here we go. So on Twitter at music speaks underscore pod, music speaks podcast on Instagram. Music Speaks Podcast on Facebook and at Music Speaks Podcast on TikTok. You guys have a TikTok now. We that do is have a terrific. TikTok. That'd be, that is I correct. love that. I do not have a TikTok, but those of you who have a TikTok should definitely follow them on TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> and they shall and they will because I am the master of the tick. No, I'm not at all. Okay. Um, <laughs> He's Val, like, yeah. Val, stick around. Uh, we'll be right back. All right, and we are back with my third time around guest, my friend Val. Val, the next song we're going to check out is Bartok's Contrasts. And I, until this point, had never heard it before. 
And now that I've heard it, I will definitely put it on my playlist, which most listeners should. And I wanted to mention quickly that if you want to go check out Val's music, Hunter will put a small little list together, and he'll put it on the podcast afterwards. So please go check that out. It'll be all of Val's songs compressed into one file. Oh, that's awesome. So people go check that out. So Val, is this a must play for all clarinetists out there? As yes, the, it as is. The, as the bell tolls here, <laughs> I'm Quasimodo. <laughs> I'm ringing it right now. I think it is a must play for clarinetists. I don't think it's a must play for the junior clarinetist. It is uh, rather difficult, but I think it is definitely a must play. I got to play it during my masters. And it is really cool because it's based on um, traditional like Hungarian folk dances. Mm. And so there are three movements and it's clarinet, violin, and piano. The clarinet is featured in the first movement, then the piano is kind of got the second, and then the violin is featured in the third. And so the first movement, you know, of course is the best one because hello. Of course, but, of course. Of yeah, course. <laughs> it is definitely a must play. Great piece of music. Of course, no doubt. Um, I need to ask because this is super technically challenging in the beginning, especially when it goes over the top. That was a, I don't know, hope, hopefully that, that gives the listener sort of a, a view into what, what's going on with the mind of Bartok. Um, so here's my question is, uh, and you had sort of brought me to this word because I didn't know about it. Um, are you playing over the bridge at this point in the piece? Because you're going crazy high and then going crazy low. Are you are you going over the, the break at that point? Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, yeah, we're going all up and down over the break <laughs> through the whole movement. Actually, uh, that's a lot of what makes it challenging as we always seem to go over at an inconvenient time. <laughs> but, but more so than that, um, the reason it's so tricky to play, it's a bit like the soldier's tale. It's your part's got enough problems and then putting it together with everybody else is just a whole different animal, you know? So mm-hmm. you've got to be very solid in your individual prep. Hey, sounds like Sondheim. <laughs> I do have to give Bartok credit because I feel like he also knew what he was writing and he was very intentional with what how he, he wrote his particular writings I think he does a really good job in that vein. And um, you've already answered the last question. Your favorite movement's the first movement. Oh, my favorite. Yeah, I do like the first movement. But actually, I've had a recent epiphany um, about the first movement. And I guess kind of the whole piece, but I was doing the first movement when I had this epiphany. So he wrote it uh, based on the Hungarian Hungarian dances. There are three different Hungarian dances. Um, The first one is the uh, Verbankos dance, the recruitment dance. And what it was, was the, uh, it was like trying to put a positive light on the army so that people would just blindly sign up and join. So I used to think it was a very serious piece and it was this like, join the army, see the world, sign the dotted line. And then, oh crap, once they actually did. So I always thought it was kind of a a nice, um, fun dance with a layer of darkness behind it. And God, I shouldn't have done that, you know, but now (laughs) that I have looked at it a little more and one of my professors here helped me see it in a bit of a different light. I think that it's uh, mostly satire. 
And the reason I say so is because the people that were doing the Verbunkers dance and performing the, the dance were often gypsies. And they were accompanied by amateur musicians who were the farthest thing pro professional. And so what would happen is what happens to all of us, something gets hard. So all of a sudden we're going like half the speed we started and then we speed up again when it's comfortable. Right. And Bartok, if you look at all the movements, there are drastic tempo changes everywhere. It's like you're going along and then two measures are half the speed and then you're just going along again. And then there are bits, the, the bits that are so hard to just fit together. I think the reason is because he's trying to emulate when the musicians would fall out of the sink fall out of sync and then just sort of find <laughs> they're gonna it. fall out of the sink they were bathing fall in out it. of the sink <laughs> fall out of sync and fall out of the sink um and then just find each other and lock in again and mistakes are very hard to make on purpose you know so i think that's where i i changed my view i don't think it's hard anymore because you have to create all these moods i think it's hard because it's satire and i think that satire is difficult to do because you have to sometimes screw up on purpose you know right yeah wow i never thought about that way but that was a really great point um i, I am be going wrong, but you what? know right no i i think that's a really great point and i think i'm gonna over to hunter now <laughs> that was a nice uh, a nice bach there um so the 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 Bach piece that you chose is the cello suite number one, which by name, most people probably don't know what it is, but then, you know, we'd have Sean sing it and then they'll all know what it is. Um, the famous one. <laughs> and it's such a classic. Uh, and I, I like the version that, uh, there's a version I listened to by Yo-Yo Ma, which mm -hmm. is of course great. Uh, do you have a favorite movement from the piece? Cause I feel like people only ever know the first. I think, you know, I don't know if I have a favorite movement, but I guess I would be inclined to say the first. And mm -hmm. I know that's like, that's the one everybody knows, but there's something to me that's very calming about it. I just love having these cello suites on in the background sometimes when I'm just doing homework or going about my day, because there's just something very peaceful and calming about it. And mm -hmm. I've been looking at the first movement a lot because actually I really want to play it on bass clarinet. Um, oh, that would so be cool. I, I think it would just sound so beautiful on bass clarinet. So that's kind of why this specific one, why I've been into it lately. Um, but yeah, the, I just think there's something very calming about it. And it's so famous and everybody knows it. But, you know, it got that famous for a reason. I, I wonder if I'm not the only one who feels calmed by it. <laughs> well, it's funny you should say that because my, my other question about the piece is, what do you think about this piece makes it speak to people so much? Because clearly it's used everywhere and people always know the sound of it, even if they don't know what it is. What do you think that reason is? Why does it speak to people? Yeah, and that's really funny because you can say that about a lot of things. You know, why any album, why this song on the album and not this song, right. you know, or why Mozart's music, why this piece and not a different piece. And I always think that it has to do with authenticity. Mm -hmm. And I know that that's a big can of worms that I can open up just by saying that word. So, right, yeah. <laughs> but I think there's something, whatever that special something is, uh, that makes it very real. I think Bach had it 
at this time, you know? Mm-hmm. And he had it in a lot of his work. Because if you think about it, Bach was nothing more than just kind of a church musician. And there were a lot of church musicians. So oh yeah, what was so special about him? And I think there was something very real behind what he was doing and very genuine behind what he was doing. What that was, I don't know. Maybe it was his intentions. Um, but I think that's the difference. He was writing music like this, not trying to get it to use it to get on some kind of a platform or pedestal he was writing it just because he genuinely liked it so i think the good intentions behind it are what propelled it forward mm-hmm. and you know obviously musicians in his era did not have well i mean the musicians never had an easy time but in his era that he was quite literally living week to week you know as a lot of church musicians were because you know they had to write something for the next the next uh, mass and their their livelihood really depended on can they produce something new every time. So writing something like this, which might not have been something you use in church, takes. I mean that takes time. Writing you know writing this takes time and takes time away from your job basically because that was what it was to them your their job. And I guess you have to really believe in what you're doing if you want if you distract from something that's your livelihood Uh at that time when the livelihood was everything yeah i would agree yeah so i'm just always i I always find it interesting to like you said you know you you put into historical perspective what it is that they were doing at the time because obviously we had a lot of composers who were living in depressed times bach was probably Mm -hmm. one of them i mean they most were um but yeah Anything else about the piece that you wanted to mention? About this piece? Well, I think um, the main thing about it is uh, that it's very calming. Mm-hmm. I, I just think it, I just find it to be very beautiful. Yeah, I agree. And with that, uh, um, I shall pass it over to Sean, and I couldn't think of a quip to make the segue. So we'll just go with that. You really left us in some very, very suspenseful atmosphere, Hunter. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. That was great, bud. Um, we're really going to get into uh, Haley Williams and her Yeah, now for something completely different. <laughs> totally, totally different. Uh, Haley Williams, Petals for Armor. Um, Valerie, when were you introduced to this album? So this album's brand new, actually. She only came out with this album in... Oh, Lord, I don't remember if it was the end of 19 or the early early 2020 but it's very new um and it's her first solo album so (laughs) i was thinking about what to bring to this podcast and i had all this clarinet music which makes sense because i am looking to be a clarinetist but then i'm like you know what let me be honest about the fact that i don't only listen to clarinet music and big band (laughs) so everybody you know goes through that phase when they're a teenager and mine was Paramore, and I'm still in my Paramore phase. And Haley Williams was the lead singer in Paramore, and this is her first solo album that she released. Wow, okay. Well, in that regard, um, based on um, sort of, uh, based on the songs, um, who, who is Haley Williams? You said she was from Paramore. What is her background in music? So she um, has just kind of been in Paramore since she's a teenager. 
And but the thing I've always admired about her is her writing. I mean, I really like the style of her music too. It's a sound that I, I really enjoy. Um, but I always liked her writing because she, a bit like Stravinsky, is not afraid to make a statement. Um, she is a lot more poetic about it, <laughs> but <laughs> she, she definitely says what she's here to say. She doesn't write fluff songs, you know? Right. She always goes out of her way to make them extremely meaningful about something, a, a wide range of topics, right. you know? Mm-hmm. Right. As Hunter is uh, getting bored over there. No, no, I'm good. No, just yawning. <laughs> I'm st- I've been sitting stationary for too long. <laughs> um, Val, we're going to get to this next question, which is we tried this a few days ago with another guest of uh, mine who uh, we actually had him name songs, but then tried to compare them to food or drinks that they can connect to uh, a, connect to the, to the songs. We did that with a food? Jacob Collier. Yeah, it was food or drinks. So if you can think of food at rapid fire, we'll be able to get through all of her 15 songs in her album. And then we'll sort of find a way of getting that to the audience. So her first song is Simmer. What would you say that food or drink would be? Well, I, I guess, you know, that's a pretty easy one. Like something that simmers. Maybe, uh, what are you, Simmer? You can tell that I don't cook very much. Maybe, um, maybe, maybe some soup? Uh, yeah. Oil? That'll, that'll work. Sure. That'll work. Soup. All right. How about leave it alone? Oh, something I don't like, like like Brussels sprouts or something. Brussels I can leave sprouts. those alone. Okay. <laughs> this might be the same thing. I'm not sure if you'll agree. Cinnamon? Cinnamon. Cinnamon? <laughs> okay. That would work. I was going to say snickerdoodle, but that'll work. Um, creepin. Creepin? The food is creepy. Let's see. Creepin can be like a snack of some sort, you know, like that cookie that you sneak at 1 a.m. when you're a little hungry, but you're not, or your leftovers. Insomnia cookies? No, I love it. I love it. Sudden desire. Sudden desire. I always have a sudden desire for some cake. I'm not going to lie. So like a nice chocolate cake Mm, or a strawberry shortcake. Okay. Dead horse. (laughs) I suppose you could eat that. I suppose you could eat that. Hunter, 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 hunter. Easy, bud. Maybe some chicken, but I don't know why. Oh, I don't right. know. <laughs> okay, that's 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 good. Uh, my friend. My friend. Well, they say like fruits and vegetables are your friend. Okay, fruits and vegetables, you got. Or like ice cream's your friend, you know, but one's better for you. <laughs> <laughs> one's the friend you want. One's the friend you need. You know. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but also. But also for Hunter, we're not advocating to eat to eat people. So no, I'm <laughs> no, there'll be no there'll be no cannibalism on here. Um, over yet, over yet. I'd have to go with like Brussels sprouts again because that you know there are really no foods I don't like except Brussels sprouts. I'll eat kind of Brussels. whatever, but with Brussels sprouts, I just always want it to be over. <laughs> All right, roses slash lotus slash violet slash iris. You know. I can honestly tell you that's a tough one. Um, maybe herbs like seasoning. So maybe like tea, maybe? You'd say? Oh, yeah, okay. That'll work. Tea, tea. Okay, all right. Why we ever? Hmm. That's a good one. I don't know. Maybe like 
you know, I have no idea. Maybe like a lunch food because sometimes food. we skip lunch by accident, and so, so it's maybe like, like why do we ever skip lunch? <laughs> maybe maybe turk maybe turkey. Okay, <laughs> let's turkey? go with that. All right, all right, turkey, turkey, pure love. Pure love. Oh, I'm gonna have to go with cake again. I just really want some cake. I don't know. <laughs> okay, taken. Taken. You said. Mm hmm. hmm. Maybe like pancakes or something, some kind of a breakfast food. Okay. Sugar on the rim? Sugar on the rim can be desserts. Sugar on the rim. Like anything, gonna... desserts or French toast or anything that requires, you know, sprinkling of powdered sugar. I was going to say maybe a margarita, but that, that that's a good one too. Oh, that too. Yeah. yeah. That'll work. I guess that's I'm in soft. a dessert today. I don't know. I didn't really know that until I started. Hunter, <laughs> Hunter come on, man. Okay. Uh, <laughs> watch we watch me while i bloom see that to me sounds more like a wine or a margarita mm, okay i okay. don't know why though it makes sense in my head i just can't really okay <laughs> and we get to her last song crystal clear that reminds me of uh like a wine or a liquor or two All or right. just water you know that pure michigan spring water right. yeah. <laughs> well i wanted to thank you for that i, I appreciate you trying to sort of do that level i know it's sort of interesting sort of dealing with that sometimes but i do appreciate you filling in that question um so now we're gonna na, 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 over to hunter now <laughs> all right so after we na, 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 um number nine on your list that you chose i'm very excited about um which was glenn miller's moonlight serenade and it's a favorite of mine, and I'm pretty sure it was on my top 10 list when I was a guest on the show a uh, thousand and one years ago. <laughs> and for me, it was one of the first big band songs I ever heard. What's your connection with the song? Well, uh, same. It's one of the first big band songs I ever heard that and in the mood, but I've always had a kind of a soft spot for Glenn Miller and for the big band sound in general, because that was always on at my grandparents' house when I would go visit. Mm -hmm. um, so it's always uh it's a it's always just had a very special place to me and i just like moonlight serenade a lot i think it's beautiful yeah it's a it's a it's a very very uh, classically not classic as in like classical music but it's a classic written song you know what i mean really gives you a, a sense of that style um and you know what we gave the miller band its signature sound since you brought it up i don't know actually what was that so he took the, I forget exactly why he did it. There was a circumstance he had to rearrange some of the parts and he gave the trumpet line to the clarinets. Oh, really? So, so in most big bands, obviously the trumpets or the saxes are the lead like powerhouse section um, or like the, you know, the, the backup section. And he gave that sound to the clarinets, which is why his band sounds a little bit softer. Like, I don't mean soft as in quiet, but soft as in the texture is a little softer because the clarinets have the harmonizing part rather yeah, than the trumpets. I, I knew he used clarinet a lot. I just didn't realize that was why. Yeah. That, that's very interesting. Yeah, it's cool, right? And as a clarinetist, I always thought that was cool that he sort of gave the clarinets their dues, which is nice. Yep, definitely. Which didn't happen often because I know a lot, you know, a lot of times, I don't know how much jazz music you play, but I found a lot of times people are like, well, clarinet's not really a jazz instrument. And I'm like, excuse me, citizen. <laughs> Do you know <laughs> about Glenn Miller? Um, clarinet is an everything uh, instrument, you know, case in point, 
uh, its appearance in the Glenn Miller Orchestra and any jazz band and big bands and klezmer bands and streets of New Orleans and orchestra and, you know, wind ensemble and everything. Right. So well, I always say like, you know, you know, Dixie style, Dixieland. I mean, it's one of the instruments, but they're always like, yeah, but it's a solo instrument. You know, they're all solo instruments playing together in Dixieland. And I'm like, are they though? <laughs> like, yeah, it's, it seems like a band to me. <laughs> but anyway, so that's the, I always get an argument with people about that, you know, but the struggles of clarinet, it's. I know. We yeah. can just do everything. It's hard, you know. <laughs> I know. It's, we have, we are people of many hats. Do you have a, a particular favorite, since we're on the subject of big bands, do you have a particular favorite big band that you like? I mean, it doesn't have to be Glenn Miller, but. Um, it's probably Glenn Miller, to is tell it? you the truth. Yeah, it probably is. It probably is. I like some of the stuff that um, Dave Brubeck like, throws out there too. I really like him. It's probably yeah. Glenn Miller for the nostalgia you know, of yeah, for the nostalgia, hearing it when I would go in my grandparents' house and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, obviously, it, it, I don't want to say it's, it's a dying art, but, it, you know, less and less people know the, the style of big band because it, it's not popular anymore. And it really was a, a time period type music. So right. that's something I really like about it. And for you, it's, you know, it's a nostalgia thing, but also I think it also it defined a generation. Yeah, unfortunately, it's not so in demand nowadays as it was back then, because back then that's what, you know, people didn't get a DJ for their wedding, they got a big band. Right. That sort of Actually, thing. Actually, my- It is a dying tradition. Yeah, my, my grandparents at their wedding, my grandmother's cousin was married to a local, you know, like a local band leader. And um, he played at their wedding and she sang because she, could sing, but didn't like to. So that's always oh. cool you see in the wedding pictures. You're like, hey, look, they're back there. But I always <laughs> thought that was neat. But it is, you know, for people of, you know, our grandparents' age, for them, it's nostalgic in its own way. N not, you know, for them, because it was of that time period and it was during a difficult time, war, depression, but it was their escape from it. You yeah. know what I mean? Because obviously people usually turn to music for escapism. Um, unless they're trying to, you know, channel their emotions, which is a whole thing that we talked about in a couple, in a deep dive that we had um, with another guest. But I think for especially the older generation, this type of music provides a, a commemorative outlet, you know, reminiscing and that kind of stuff. Yeah, for sure. It's funny you say that actually. My grandfather had a little, um, a little like wedding orchestra that he put together oh, yeah. when I say that I mean very much big band style orchestra and he made my grandmother sing too she hated it but because <laughs> she didn't think she could sing really but he always made her sing because he's like you're kind of the only girl we need a girl he's like I wouldn't let you go on if you <laughs> and so but she actually I've heard their recording she does have a beautiful voice she just really couldn't stand getting up there and singing <laughs> yeah that's funny the, the cousin of, of my grandmother's, she didn't want to do it professionally, which is why she didn't, but also because her father was like, that is a not profession for a, a respectable young lady. I won't, yeah, use, his, I won't also, use his words. Also a different time, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Very different time. Uh, look at the artists always being put down. 
I know it. <laughs> and speaking of the artists who were often looked down by the older generation, Sean? Do you want to sing the opening line, Hunter? You really don't want me to do that. Come on, man. Come on. Let's do it. Here comes the sun. Doo -doo -doo -doo. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there you go. There you go. That's perfect. All right. We're going to talk about uh, Here Comes the Sun. Um, ironically, yesterday, um, Val, we had to listen to Jacob Collier's version of Here Comes the Sun. Have you heard that yet? Oh, no, I haven't. Okay. So I guess we'll have to play some of that before you get going here, but um, maybe we'll check that out because um, it was a very cool piece. Um, we did talk about this the last time, the first time that you were here. I'm going to say last time because we talked about something different the oh, last time you were here. Sorry. I couldn't no. remember which Beatles song I brought, but I figured no. I my uh, homage to that. I just really like the Beatles. So no. I give my little homage so to the Beatles. We, we talked about this when you came on the first time, but why is this song so relevant now? Um, yeah, you know, it's it's certainly very relevant now. And I, I guess I when I was picking this music, because this is just kind of the music that's been on shuffle lately or a little example of the kind of things that have been on shuffle lately. And so I just right. picked my top 10 from there. But I guess I inadvertently uh, stumbled upon a theme because Here Comes the Sun is obviously very relevant now, but it was written not now. It was written quite a long time ago yeah. now. And so it's, again, this theme of the more things change, the more they stay the same. You know, it, it, the whole message is like, it'll be over soon, you know? Right, right yeah. <laughs> Or it's, it's slowly ending now and things are getting good again. Right. And I, I need to ask you, um, what is something that you can acknowledge to be the sun in, in this picture of your life? But what has sort of um, put you put a smile on your face? Now, because I know back maybe, I don't know when ago when I interviewed you, but we were still stuck in quarantine mm -hmm. and we were still sort of dealing with a lot of different issues. But now that we're sort of getting close to the finish line, maybe not as so yet, but we have a goal set in mind. Um, what puts a, what's put, what puts a smile on your face now? Now it's a lot of, well, it is music. Um, and it is this sense of normalcy in my music now. I've got a lot to practice for. Um, I'm only instead of live performances, it's a lot of recording projects lately, but right. that certainly helps this sense of, um, get, I have a goals again. So that certainly does. And also uh, family, I have to admit, I've gotten a lot closer to, not that I wasn't always close with family, but I, you know, it, it wasn't anything like that, but I have to admit during this time, I've really used it to spend quality time with family, like my siblings, my grandparents, um, right. my parents. And so that has to, right. just having that inner circle of people with me. Right. I'm very lucky. And I do want to mention to the listeners at home, Val is the nicest, warmest person you'll ever really get to know. <laughs> um, and I think that really goes to show the character of like who you are as a person which really makes it for a really beautiful, like, because you're really, really a nice person. Um, and I, I, I hate to sort of exaggerate that, but that's who you are. Um, and you've learned a lot from your music. Um, would you say that you've learned so much to say, you've learned so much from this song to to be that that warm self? I, I would, I thank you. That's very sweet of you uh, to say, by the way. Um, 
I would think that this song is inspiring. Yeah. And I would hope it inspires a lot of people's attitude. I think that's kind of uh, what they had in mind um, maybe when they were writing it, but I would hope it inspires a lot of people's attitude. Just puts a little bit of a more optimistic um, cause I know that if you're too positive, sometimes it can get a, a little dangerous, but I don't think there's any wrong, anything wrong with airing on the side of optimism. And I think that's a lot of what this song does. Right. Yeah. Val, we have gotten to the end of your top 10 list. Uh, actually we got to the end of your top 20 list. Um, <laughs> I do want to say, oh, yeah, I guess I it is, now. it is so great having you here. We're going to have to have you come back for your fourth time to get your platinum jacket, as I mentioned before. Maybe I would to love get to your, come back, but I do want my letters when I come back. My little, like, <laughs> <laughs> it'll nice be your, jacket. it'll be your nice jacket. Um, but we're not done with you yet. We do have a clarinet quiz that Hunter will be able to give you in the few minutes. Um, uh, I hope you are studied and ready to go. Um, we are going to take a break. Um, Hunter's giving me the eye saying, hold on, ma'am. We have one more thing to tell you. And that's right. Thank you, Hunter. <laughs> and is so important for you to reach us at musicspeaks.pod at gmail.com. Let us know how we're doing. Let us know what you're up to. Let us know how you're feeling about the podcast. Let us know if you want to be a guest on the show. That's what we're advertising today. So if you're interested in that, please let us know. We are going to take a break, Val. Don't go anywhere. Don't leave that sofa wherever you are. <laughs> I uh, will, will not. Be, I wouldn't dream we'll, of it. We'll stick to you that sofa. Hunter, don't leave that chair. I am not going to leave this um, nice back thing that I have right now. So uh, we will be back in a few seconds. Stay it doesn't even get a name. Toot. All right, and we are back with Val, and we are with our um, little clarinet quiz here, which admittedly I did not make, nor did Sean. Um, so let's see how you do. Let's see. All right, here we go. Oh, number one, which family does the clarinet belong to? It is a woodwind family is that what they're looking for that is what they're looking for very nice all right how many reeds does a uh, does the clarinet have only one one lonely little reed it is one lonely little reed unless you're eric mandat playing double life in which that's case. right exactly <laughs> except unless you're him all right number three what is the name of a person who plays clarinet? Like a, like the, what you would call a clarinetist or? Oh, there you go, you said it. Well, it had options here and it said clarinetist, clarinetur, or a clarinetter. Oh, I like clarinetur, I think we should change clarinetur. it. <laughs> clarinetur just sounds uneducated, but I like clarinetur. It does. <laughs> makes us sound fancy um yep. all right what country did the clarinet originate in that would be germany very nice all right what is the most common type of clarinet 
Um, any one of the soprano clarinets, B flat or A, probably it's probably looking for B flat though. You would be correct. It's probably looking for B flat. Uh, the options it gave are B flat clarinet, D clarinet, and Bassett clarinet. Oh, God forbid. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I've ever like, I don't know. I've never known anyone who's owned a Bassett clarinet. Um, I do not own one, but I have played one and it is, uh, we are very lucky. It is not the most common. <laughs> yeah. Beautiful Our, instrument, but terribly difficult. <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, it sounds nice, but clarinets have the largest pitch range of common woodwinds, true or false? Of common woodwinds. Well, that kind of depends if they include bassoon and common woodwinds, but I'm just going to say yes. And hang on one moment. That's a good question because when I clicked on it, it didn't actually give me the answer. Oh, I mean, it depends on what they mean by, I think, I think it's actually bassoon that has the biggest range of the woodwind, but. Uh, Is it really? Like, well, I mean, I they? suppose. Let's see. I would say bassoon. I, I think it's bassoon. I guess that would be a common woodwind. I guess, I mean, I guess, I guess it depends on what, hang on. One moment, this is, I'm being stupid here and it's not giving me the answer. So I have, let's say, let's I have say that- I have clarinet actually. Clarinet has the largest uh, range. I found, oh, that okay. on, I found that on Google. Really, is that what it says? Yeah. Huh. Oh, well then I guess that it's true. All right, then. I was all right. right. We'll see when this is done, if it gives me all the answers. Um, of all the, of the following clarinets, which is the highest? B flat, A, or C? Uh, the C clarinet is the highest one. C clarinet, that is true. We know that one for a fact. Mm -hmm. um, true or false? Vero o falso? Um, the clarinet is never used as a solo instrument. Falso. It is falso. This is true. Otherwise, we would have invalidated everything we just talked about in the first couple of pieces. That's right. In which of the following genres is the clarinet least common? Jazz, classical, or rock? I never understood why it wasn't used more in rock. And by that, I mean, I, I kind of get it, but rock. <laughs> yeah, rock, which is funny because actually maybe, well, I suppose an early rock and roll, you know, they had a brass section. They could have had a clarinet too, but. All right, what kind of clarinet is referred to in Europe as a tenor clarinet? Is it a piccolo clarinet, a bass clarinet, or an alto clarinet? You know, I'm gonna guess alto clarinet just because I'm fairly certain they keep the bass called bass. Mm -hmm. um, huh. All right, the answer. So you said which one? Alto clarinet? My guess, yeah. You would be correct. Oh, that's interesting. You learn something new every day. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know they called it a tenor instead of an alto over there. Yes. and Yeah, I didn't know that either, which is weird because I suppose, well, then what would they call a, an alto clarinet then? Yeah, I guess so. Well, you know, we don't really have anything that we call a tenor clarinet. So I guess they just, they just don't yeah, have Yeah, maybe. That, that's weird, yeah. Interesting. I guess if, they, if they had it. Well, congratulations. You have passed with flying colors. Oh, good. Yes. <laughs> that would be embarrassing if I did. <laughs>
we can be confident in your knowledge of clarinetry. <laughs> and with that, I shall take us back to Sean. But before I do, I will thank you, Val, for being on. And it was so nice to get to see you again. It's a pleasure to be here. I enjoy coming on here, chatting with you guys. Sean. All right, Val. It's my turn. I gotta be super sappy. No, no, I don't. I'll see you soon. Um, it is so great to have you here. It is like I, I literally ask you and you're like, Yeah, let's do it. I'm like, cool. So that means you're just gonna be a regular. He was so, weeping internally. I was like, She's gonna be here. No kidding. Um no, I'm I'm just so happy that you're here and that we get to talk to you and just uh have great conversations with you. So Me too. Always a pleasure. I like I love a good chat. All right, Val. We'll see you soon. We'll talk soon. All right. All right. Sounds good. Bye, everybody. All right. Thanks, Val. And uh, we'll check with you next time. And my name is Sean Arcunis. That guy over there. Yep, that's Hunter Zagona. And we will definitely see you next time.